Hello everybody and welcome to Kickback, your global anti-corruption podcast. Enjoy today's episode of this joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. You can subscribe to the show via Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. If you like what we do, leave us a rating at Apple Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with the show, follow us on Facebook or send an email to info at icrnetwork.org. That's info at icrnetwork.org. Today's episode of Kickback features Roctel Nijay Paley. She's an academic, an activist, and the author of two children's books on corruption. We recorded this interview last November at an anti-corruption conference in Copenhagen. As Niels sat down with her on quite short notice, uh, we were not able to find a good recording location, though this is why there are some background noises in the beginning of the episode. Apologies for that, but I think we still get a great interview out of it with two true anti-corruption enthusiasts. So have fun and enjoy this episode. All right. Rob Tell, thanks so much for taking the time for the interview. Oh, no problem. My pleasure. Um, maybe to, to kick us off, I have one question for you because you're doing so many different things, so many interesting things. How do you answer the following question? You're in a dinner party with friends and people ask you, what do you do? <laughs> I say to them that I am a Liberian academic, activist and author. And all of those hats that I wear somehow bleed into one another. So my activism informs not only my creative work, but it also informs my academic work, my scholarly work. Is there any of the three that came first? Or was it always these three sort of in tandem? Honestly, I think all of them have already, they always existed in me. And I think, you know, in terms of my scholarship, um, that was probably cultivated when I went to university. So a bit later, maybe later adolescence. Um, but I've always thought of myself as somebody who's maladjusted to injustice. This is a phrase that Cornell West, African-American public scholar uses. Um, in my creative work, I've always written, you know, written creative nonfiction stuff. Increasingly, I'm doing more creative fiction, particularly around children's books. Uh, so I, yeah, I, I can't think of a time when I wasn't an activist or didn't consider myself an activist or uh, a time when I didn't think of myself as cr of creative. Right. Um, and then my, again, my scholarly work just sort of developed when I went to university more and more. I see. So last time we met, it was in Paris and you presented your book, Bagba. Mm -hmm. Could you tell the audience a little bit about what this is about? Sure. So Bagba is an anti-corruption children's book. It was published by One More Book, which is a small niche publisher based in the United States that was started by Liberian social entrepreneurs who are actually artists themselves. It was also illustrated by a friend, colleague of mine by the name of Chase Walker. He's a self-taught visual artist, has been doing political cartoons in Liberia for a long time and then um, moved to the United States to really hone his craft more formally. 
Um, and Bagba is um, loosely translated as corruption or trickery in uh, Basa, which is one of the 16 indigenous languages in Liberia. And it follows the day in the lives of twin characters, eight-year-old twin characters, Sandema and Sandega, who leave the port city of Buchanan, where their parents live, to visit their aunt and uncle in Monrovia, which is the capital of Liberia. And they have a series of experiences and encounters that remind them of this word, Bagba. Um, so it's an anti-corruption children's book, and it's pretty much a manual teaching children how not to be corrupt effectively <laughs> um, through the narrative lens of these two characters. Uh, so yeah, that's it in a nutshell. And it creates basically a lot of situations where Bagba could occur. Yes. Is there any guidance you would give parents if they want to engage with their kids in discussing these situations? Sure. Um, they can use the book as a guide. Yes. <laughs> It is available um, on a, different, a number of different platforms. But I think the entry point really is to ask children about how they view um, honesty. So what does honesty look like? Uh, what does dishonesty look like? And then I also challenge parents to sort of model the rhetoric, right? So we teach children how to be honest, how it's important to tell the truth, but we adults often don't live that truth, right? Um, and children are incredibly astute. I mean, they're incredibly observant and they see that quite often the rhetoric doesn't match the reality and it confuses them. And sometimes they have questions in their head about why their parent might tell them to be honest, but they might see the parent not being honest in a particular scenario. So the book is really intended to, it's not only for children, it's also for adults, to make them kind of understand the psyche of a child, how those confusing ethical codes might might hurt children, um, and how corruption adversely affects children, psychologically, but also socially, right? Uh, so yeah, I, I think the book can be a guide. And when, when adults read it to their children, I think their eyes kind of open wide up, and they say, wait a second, I didn't realize these particular instances right. where I'm behaving in a certain way has this sort of impact on my child. Right. And how, how did parents react to the book? <laughs> I think parents love me and hate me at the same time. <laughs> so the, the book was uh, adapted into a stage play, a full-length stage play with an all-child cast. Um, and a number of the parents of the all-child cast have come up to me and said, you know, thank you for giving this gift to our children. Because effectively all the children, there are about 25 children who'd been trained for almost five months by a local theater troupe, Flomo Theater. Um, not only in terms of stage production and acting, but also having conversations around what does corruption mean? How does it manifest itself? And I think the parents have recognized that the stage plays an opportunity for them to have these conversations with their children about dishonesty versus dis, you know, honesty and the blurred lines therein. Because I think as adults, we tend to rationalize um, and justify <laughs> um, corrupt practices that children don't necessarily rationalize. They're very clear about what's right and what's wrong, depending on how they've been socialized. So, Absolutely. And... I mean, you, you just gave a talk here at this workshop. You had this great example um, of the mother uh, asking, the ch could you maybe retell it? Yes, sure. So there's this, uh, there's this, it's become almost folklore. I don't know where the, start, the story began, but in Liberia, there's this tale, and I'm sure it manifests itself in different ways in other, in other cultures. 
but there's a story about a mother who's at home with her child, her son, or daughter, depending on the context. And she tells, they get a knock at the door and she tells the child to tell the person at the door who she doesn't want to see or talk to that she is not home. And she hides in the back so that the person at the door doesn't see her. And the child goes to the door and opens the door and says very emphatically, my mother said, I should tell you that she is not home. And the reason I use this example, Niels, is to really explain to people that children are just inherently, I think, refreshingly honest, right? And they're refreshingly honest until we start socializing them to be otherwise, to be dishonest, to fudge the truth a little bit. And this, this particular instance is an example of how adults will school children in the ways of being dishonest, right? It's clear that the mother is home, but she doesn't want to see this person. Um, so her rational her rationale is, let me allow my child to go now lie on my behalf. And the child doesn't do that. The child tells the exact truth in the most in the most endearing but honest and refreshing way. So the point of the book and the point of this sort of movement, this revolution from below that I talk about is to stop that socialization process in its track and to enable parents to realize that that you know, stopping the socialization process and its tracks is really important when it starts from the home. So don't rationalize and don't think that, you know, sending your child to the door to tell an adult that you're not in the house when you actually are, you know, doesn't have an impact on that child. It does. That's super fascinating because you, besides the book, I mean, it turned into a whole movement. It right? did. It seems to uh, take over. At least, I mean, it started in Liberia. Yes, it did start in Liberia. Could you yeah. tell us a little bit more how, how it expanded? Sure, as how it expanded. Yeah. So sure. Um, I realized that the right now the initially the the written text, the book itself, was being sold um, on Amazon and through my publisher's website. So a lot of children in Liberia and even adults in Liberia, schools in Liberia, didn't have access to it initially. Um, my publisher, One More Book, has now done a phenomenal job of establishing um, a general interest bookstore. So they have a bookstore in Monrovia, the capital, where they actually sell copies of the book and other books by Liberians as well as not Liberians. But I realized that because the book was inaccessible to the very people where the story is set, I needed to create some sort of multimedia tools around it. So we adapted the book into a song and we paired up with uh, Takun Jay, who's a really popular hip-go musician in Liberia, very, very well known for his socially conscious uh, rapping. And then we made a music video out of it. So not only do you have the audio, which spreads the message of the, of the book, of the written text, but you've also got the video. Um, we also, as I mentioned previously, we also adapted the book into a full-length stage play where we use an all-child cast. They've done one debut in Monrovia, and the idea is to take this play on a tour, not only in Liberia, but outside, you know, outside of Liberia. So the stage play adaptation is supposed to take the place of the written text, right? Um, we've also adapted the book into a five-minute radio drama. What I recognize is that many people get their news and information in Liberia through the radio. People have access to radio because it's cheaper than, you know, having a television or even having a $12 book mm. in their possession. So the five-minute radio drama, we paired up with Flomo Theater, which is the same um, theater group that helped to produce the stage play. And they created a five-minute radio drama that's really accessible. I mean, you get the gist of the play and, I mean, the, the gist of the book in that five minutes. And it's been played across about seven, 67 different radio stations, both community as well as commercial I have to do a plug for the Open Society Initiative for West Africa because they've enabled me to spread the message through these different multimedia tools. 
And then beyond that, we've also piloted the book in about 30 schools. So primarily schools, government schools that wouldn't have access to actual texts. We've donated about, I think, 3,500 copies in two different regions. We're going to spread it to all the 15 regions called counties in Liberia to give children the actual physical book, because I think seeing the illustrations is also really important. Chase has done such a wonderful job that he enables the text to really jump off the the page. Um, so, so yeah, those are the things we're doing. I've also done workshops with children, not only in Liberia around the book, but also in Cote d'Ivoire, in the UK, in Jamaica, um, in Mozambique. And the idea is to make this a pan-African initiative, but also a global initiative, right? So I'm doing workshops with children outside of, um, outside of, of Africa, outside of West Africa, in the diaspora, as well as um, in Western European countries, and hopefully to be able to introduce it in other contexts as well in the United States, where I have um, some relationships and networks. Yeah, we, we're going to link to all of that in the show notes. And, Great. Um, a question that I had, because one thing, I mean, out of all the many things you're doing that you didn't mention yet is the, the Forum Theater. Oh, okay. Could you tell us a little bit about <laughs> yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. You really like the Forum Theater. I do like the Forum Theater. <laughs> so Forum Theater is basically an opportunity for the cast to have a conversation with the audience post-show. And we did that at the debut um, of Bog by the Stage play in Monrovia at Monrovia City Hall. So after the play, the play is about 30 minutes long. After the play, um, the all-child cast pretty much lines up on the stage and they enable the audience to ask questions and they're supposed to respond in character. So if you're playing the role of a police officer who takes a bribe, for instance, if someone poses a question to you as a police officer, you respond as a police officer and it's completely unscripted. So the children are again, are imbibing this character. They fully inhabited this character and they're responding as a character. And the beauty of form theater is that it is an engaging tool for post, because usually when you think about going to a stage play, an adult stage play, you rarely ever have a conversation with the cast post show. So forum theater is an opportunity to get the audience engaged in a conversation around social issues. So we did the forum theater post uh, Bug by the Stage play. And for me, it was really fascinating because the, the audience comprised not only children, they were children from schools across Monrovia and its environs, but also policymakers, people who work in the donor community. And it was a, I mean, I was really fascinated by how filled the, the theater was. But we allowed the children to ask the questions first. And one of the first questions that came up was a young girl at a private school. And she asked the young boy who plays the police officer, so police officer, what would it take for you to stop taking bribes? And the young boy responded instantaneously and said, increase my salary. So this young kid had already recognized by inhabiting this character, understanding the psyche of a police officer, transport police officer, that one of the reasons that corruption persists is because it's a function of poverty, but also a function of greed, right? So he recognized that police officers in Liberia are not paid adequately and therefore they can't provide for their family. So that's probably one of the reasons why they solicit and take bribes. So that instantaneous reaction for me, and again, unscripted, said to me that maybe we were onto something here, that this boy really understood how corruption manifests itself socially and why people do what they do. Yeah, so that that's an example of the forum theater. Has your view on corruption changed ever since <laughs> you've been doing all these things? I think, I mean, I've, I've always been somebody who's viewed corruption as something that's not just about, you know, using public influence or private gain or entrusted 
you know, mm. using entrusted power for private gain. I've always thought of corruption as something that's much more malleable, much more um, normalized, having, you know, witnessed it in Liberia and really trying to push policymakers to think about corruption in a much more expansive way, right? So how does corruption manifest itself in the informal sector where a market woman, for instance, will um, give you less than you deserve? She might give you a rot rotten pineapple or a rotten banana when she knows very well that that fruit is rotten, but she'll sell it to you and make a profit off of it. So I think it's it's made me think about corruption in more expansive terms, and it's made me realize that I need to push policymakers and those who come up with these definitions um, to think about it in more expansive terms. And then beyond that, I think some of the responses that I get from children in the workshops for me is just mind boggling that children are incredibly astute. They know exactly what corruption is. Um, some of them already have the verbal tools, others don't. And it's a matter of kind of giving them those verbal tools or doing it in such a way that it's in a safe space so they can talk about it and articulate it. Perhaps that they, in a way that they necessarily wouldn't be able to do it in a, in a home setting or in a church setting. So yeah, it's, I think it's made me realize that children can be norm setters in terms of creating alternative examples uh, of how corruption impacts societies, right? So how does corruption impact children is the question that I'm most fascinated about now, having written this book and having done these workshops with children. And how would you say it impacts them? And when in their developmental stage do you think it's most important? I think, um, you know, child psychologists talk about the fact that you know, children begin to form an ethical core and a moral compass between the ages of eight and 10, and some children even earlier than that. But that's really kind of the target age. And I realized that if we start, if we start inculcating a new, new norms around values in that eight to 10, you know, age range, that's when we start building a new core of uh, value trendsetters or social norms trendsetters. Um, and they can now school the adults. <laughs> into being better human beings or being better patriots or being better uh, uh, citizens of their states. Um, so I think children are a unique a unique uh, demographic that we haven't really talked about in the anti-corruption or corruption discourse. And for me, that's my entry point is um, more than just spreading messages, but allowing the children to speak for themselves, to sort of speak into existence how corruption adversely affects them. Um, and you talked about something really interesting, Nils, in your presentation about identifiable victims. What if we thought about children as a clear identifiable victim um, as it relates to corruption, how corruption affects society, right? So money that is stolen or siphoned off has an impact on whether or not a child has access to health care, whether or not a child has access to quality education, whether or not a child has access to a good road that would take them to that hospital or that school, when whether or not their parents have access to even providing for them, whether it's paying tuition or, or any of that. And I think when children start talking about, you know, corruption is worse than murder, or, you know, perhaps adults will think about things a bit differently. Policymakers, as well as those who encounter children or work with children in their day-to-day -day interactions. Yeah, it's super interesting because it's such a challenge to make something identifiable and visible that's not there, yeah. right? Like, it's yeah. so hard to imagine the road not being in a bad state, mm -hmm. right? And thinking about ways how we could maybe even make people Yeah, sort of identify with the costs of corruption yeah. more directly. And I think that your approach using children is so interesting because I think for adults, it's really hard to discard the negative costs on children. Mm -hmm. Whereas for other adults, you might always construct some sort of Absolutely. story, especially when there are some political alliances at stake. Right? Absolutely. So I think it's very 
super important what you do and also what you mentioned with the verbal tools that you provide. So you have Wakpa, but mm-hmm. you also are providing children with the opposite tool yes, now. Yes, um, absolutely. You mentioned that the, the book Jade is coming out yeah, yeah. in 2019. So yeah, so there's a sequel. Thank you for all these plugs. I'm, I'm <laughs> <laughs> there's a sequel um, for Bagba called Jade, and Jade means truthfulness, honesty, integrity in Basa, which is the same language that mm. I use for, for Bagba. And Jade pretty much picks up where Bagba ends because Bagba ends on a cliffhanger. And in fact, many people, when they read the book initially, they were saying, but where's the rest of it, Rubtel? <laughs> so I purposely ended it on the cliffhanger because I knew in my mind's eye that there would be a part two. So the part two really is an, an, an opportunity for us to have conversations with children about how to be accountable to not only oneself, but also to one's community, one's nation, one's globe. Um, and there are a series of encounters that the children have in Jade that pretty much counteract the encounters that they have around Bagba in the first book. Um, and it's about introducing children to model behavior, behavior that we should be um, modeling, behavior that we should be sort of praising and, and elevating um, as an alternative. <laughs> to those bribe-seeking, you know, public officials or informal private sector folks. Um, And for me, it's also important to use local languages because I think quite often, especially in Liberia, my my experience is that people use the term corruption in a very cliched way. Like anybody can use a term. It's usually thrown at someone else. It's usually meant to point the finger at somebody else without realizing that four other fingers are pointing back at you, right? So it's an opportunity for people to have some sort of self-reflection. You know, how does my behavior affect those in my society, particularly the children in my society? And as I was telling you, Nils, I'm more excited about the second book than I was the first book. The first book felt a bit obligatory, but the second book is such a labor of love. And it's such a collaborative labor of love because we've been able to bring in um, a Basa speaker, Amos Ba Sr., who's written a translated version of Jade. So you'll see on the, on the, on the text page that you know, the first few lines are in English, the next lines are in Basa, and so forth and so on. Um, so not only am I introducing the book's title in the local language Basa, but it's also the entire text is translated into Basa. So I'm so, so super stoked, and I'm really excited about sharing this book with the world. Yeah, you have to. I mean, that seems to be such a valuable tool. I mean, not just for anti-corruption practitioners. And I think the way you describe it, sort of making children be the mirror to maybe the adults, right? Mm-hmm. Reflecting mm-hmm. themselves. Absolutely. In, yeah, it's, it's almost like turning, you know, the notions about adults uh, showing children values. What I argue is that children can show adults value or remind adults about the values that are important for society. Yeah, so it's it's totally that inversion, which... You know, people are kind of jarred by, but I think for me it works psychologically. Yeah, and I think it could also be a very useful tool to show people behavioral alternatives Mm. because oftentimes I feel like people describe a situation when there is a lot of corruption as being trapped, right? Like I'm trapped, I cannot do anything because everybody else is engaging in it. But through these different media, you can actually help people to visualize first, maybe then enact in a sort of theater piece, but then eventually engage in in a different behavior path, right? Absolutely, definitely. So for me, corruption, in terms of stamping it out or what do you do about it to mitigate it, is um, consequences. In Bagba, there are clear consequences of how... 
uh, people who engage in corrupt practices, not only in the private sector or public sector, but also in schools and churches and all of that, um, are punished. Because I think punishment and, and seeing consequences of corruption is important, not only for adults, but also kids too, right, as a, as a form of deterrence. But then beyond that is also, what are the alternatives? Like, what, what should we be aspiring to? Um, and for me, that's equally important, if not more important, because... It can feel like a trap. I mean, in talking to university students who say this is normalized, it's something that happens everywhere and everybody does it. So why should we do anything differently? So there is a phenomenon in social psychology. It's called the what the hell effect. Mm. And the idea is to that sometimes, for example, people that want to diet, um, <laughs> they eat a little bit, a little piece of the chocolate and okay. then they realize, oh, now I broke my goal. So I might as well eat all of it. <laughs> and I sometimes wonder how to sort of help people to rebound from that, right? Also, maybe with relation to Kubakba, right? Mm. So let's say you did something that mm -hmm. you initially thought would actually not be acceptable, especially after being exposed to your mm -hmm. children who remind you of it. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any idea how you could sort of help people to sort of reset the moral button? You know what's interesting, Niels? I, like, I'm really trying hard not to talk about um, Jade because <laughs> I want people to read the book. But there is an example of precisely that where someone in the first book, Bagba, is someone who engages in corruption. And then you almost see like a reformation, you know, in the sequel. And I'm not, I'm not going to say more, more no, than that. A good but the intention of that is to really show children and adults that, you know, everybody, everybody is complicit in this thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we have to perpetuate it. So we might, we might engage in corrupt practices in, in one instance or one day and decide, you know what? That actually wasn't quite helpful. Maybe I can do something differently in in uh, the next time I engage with the traffic police officer. I won't, you know, solicit that bribe or I won't take that bribe, and I'll make that the norm. Um, so there is a character you see going through a reform process, and the and the twins in the in the in the book are like, wow, you know, this can actually happen. So yes, <laughs> there's a particular example in the book of, about that taking place. I'm really looking forward to reading. <laughs> I've given away your Bakba group book to, to no, 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 some... it's fine, it's fine. Well, I've, I've used it to give it to, as a present for for friends who just. Oh, I remember uh, you purchased some copies. I exactly. appreciate the support. Yeah, and I'm curious to know what the response has been. Uh, so far, very positive. Yeah. Okay. And it's been now introduced even to German kindergarten so the teaching tools. So. It's I have really to thank spreading. your wife for that. <laughs> exactly. It's spreading beyond uh, the realms of West Africa. It's oh, all the that's way going great. To, that's to, what yeah. I want to happen, for sure. And hopefully Jade will do the same thing. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading that, for mm -hmm. sure. So I'm mindful of your time. I know that you have to catch a, a plane. Okay. Um, at the end of the podcast, what we do is a few like rapid-fire questions. Okay, so, sure. Um, let's start off. Do you have a must-read book unrelated to corruption? God of Small Things by Arundhati Roy, my all-time favorite. Okay, cool. What is your weirdest habit? I um, So I'm a bit OCD about symmetry. So everything has to be particularly aligned in order for me to do any work. So I can't concentrate if maybe the phone is not in a particular alignment. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And maybe as a last question for you, um, is there any pick... So we always call it pick of the podcast, a book, a podcast, a song, uh, a movie that you'd recommend, especially maybe in relation to corruption. Oh, I totally, totally. This is another plug. I totally, totally, totally recommend Jade is Integrity, which is a song that's uh, adapted from the Jade um, children's book. 
And what I love about this book is that it's a collaboration between Takunje, who um, produced the first song, Bagba is Corruption, and my younger sister, Ella, who is, oh. for me, the most phenomenal vocalist. I know she's going to say you're biased, but I think she's the most phenomenal vocalist and incredibly humble. But they basically did this song in two different continents. So Ella's based in the United States, in the Washington, D.C. area. Takunje is based in um, Monrovia, Liberia. And they did this across across the, the ocean. Um, and even the video, the video is set in two different continents, two different cities, two different countries. So I recommend it because I think it's just stellar. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's great. We're going to link to all of that. Um, besides that, where can people find out about you? Okay. So uh, I have a personal website, which is www.robtel, R-O-B-T-E-L, Nijay, N-E-A-J-A-I, Paley, P-A-I-L-E-Y.com. So that's www.robtelnijaypaley.com. And it has everything that I do around activism, scholarship, as well as uh, creative stuff. Fantastic. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me, Nancy.